Hi, welcome to Taz Two Cents. Today on the show, we have the man behind Carbonomics. Carbonomics is a Twitter handle and YouTube channel focuses on carbon credits, specifically in the voluntary carbon markets. Today, we're going to cover a couple companies in the space, Adero Clean Technologies, AVAX Technologies, and Base Carbon. I think we get a lot of good points covered in this show, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Carbonomics, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So last time you were on, it was 2022. August 1st was the release for that episode. And since then, there's been quite a few changes. Uh, last time we talked a lot about ESG, we talked a little bit about the war in Russia and kind of some of the energy problems we could be seeing in Europe. This time around, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about how carbon markets have developed the last year, last year and a half. I wonder if we could just sort of kick it off with your take on the the state of the voluntary carbon markets today. Yeah, so we've seen we've seen quite a steep decline in prices, uh, at least you know, in what's reported in the OTC markets, um, and that's not necessarily reflective of everything that's going on, um, specifically because you know a lot of those prices can get skewed by um, relative illiquidity or or some of the other factors going on there. So. Uh, it's not perfectly representative of what's going on, uh, but there has been quite a significant decline in what we've seen in the markets. Although the markets have generally been growing continuously over time, um, and we've still seen a lot of the institutional interest, although it has died down a little bit. Um, you know, there's still deals being done all the same, and uh, there's relatively a decent amount of action going on, um, but things have fallen off quite a bit as well so yeah i just just in preparation for the show i thought i would pull up the uh, live carbon prices on the carboncredits.com and to my surprise actually because i haven't been following this market as closely lately nature-based offsets are year-to-date down 66 percent according to them and aviation industry offsets 72 percent I wonder what your thoughts are on a recession and how that may impact the voluntary markets. Cause it seems like a lot of these companies, when push comes to shove, they sort of leave their environmental commitments and they kind of just go back to holding on to as much profit as they can. Yeah. I think we're not at a point yet where there's the concept that uh, Marin Katusa has talked about previously was uh, the idea that carbon credits would be given goods where the demand will increase, you know, no matter what, um, no matter what's going on, you know, demand will just continuously increase over time. And I think there will be a point where carbon credits reach that threshold, uh, but it, it won't happen yet. Um, just because some of those factors that would play into that are, are just not existing right now. Um, for example, you know, the green bond markets will need to grow significantly larger and play a larger role in finance um, and instigate things in that way. So 
we're going to need to see some other things as long with um, government mandates and and some of these other factors as well. Um, those will eventually play into the markets and kind of make carbon credits recession proof in a way, relatively speaking. You know, any commodity will have a downturn um, in a recession. That's just how it is. But, uh, you know, it could be far more recession proof than most commodities, in my opinion. Uh, but the factors just aren't quite there yet. Yeah, I agree. It's still a new industry and it, it has its growing pains that way. And I think what I agree with you completely, I think what needs to happen is it needs to be a financial pro to utilize the carbon credits, like whether it be in, you know, green bonds, or perhaps if it comes out with some new legislation that they need to show their carbon on their balance sheet. And if you're offsetting enough, then you could get more investor interest that way and raise the stock price. But there, there definitely has to be some kind of financial motivation to keep these credits demand high. I wonder if you could just sort of give me your take on where we're at as far as the voluntary market and the cycle that they could be going through. I don't know. It's generally a kind of a boom bust and a couple times before a new industry like this really takes off. It seems like we're in a bit of a dip at the moment. I wonder if you think we're sort of at the bottom of this first dip or how new you, you feel that this industry is. Yeah, so as I was saying, I think sentiment will generally follow what's going to happen in the larger markets. Uh, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not big in timing things and trying to figure out when exactly the sector is going to turn and, you know, try to make all these different macroeconomic predictions. You know, that's just not a game that I think is is really worth playing. Um, so I'm generally just going to position myself ahead of time. And, you know, if it takes longer, then it takes longer. You know, if I'm buying quality companies and and they're eventually going to reach revenues and cash flows, you know, um, it doesn't really concern me what what's going to happen in the short term. So, um, you know, overall, it's just not too big of a concern for me. But um, I do believe that, you know, it could still be quite some time before we actually see a recovery uh, in some of the ESG names and a lot of these other prospects, um, just because, you know, there's been such an undersupply in oil and gas and some of the other commodities that, uh, you know, some of these different factors will go by the wayside, especially ESG. Yeah, for sure. It's it's hard for them to make those commitments when money's tight. And I think where I was going with that as well, not just based on prices and stock price and, and offset pricing, is the maturity in the market. It takes time to build structure and it takes time to build, you know, interest and i think for me one of the largest factors will be the availability of credits to people and having a platform to be able to buy voluntary credits buy and sell and i know one company that you're really interested in is abax technologies i wonder what you've seen mature in the industry as far as like the ability to buy and sell or you know, the quality of the credits or perhaps the level of interest in different projects that are going on or, you know, complexity in those projects. 
and higher level people moving into those areas. That's the kind of maturity that I'm I'm talking about. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and a little bit about ABAX technologies as well. Yeah, as far as maturity goes, you know, we still have a long ways before these markets reach any substantial level. I mean, I believe it was 2021 or 2022 where they just hit a valuation of $2 billion. And that's you know, the entire valuation of the voluntary carbon markets. So mm -hmm. uh, these are really small markets in the grand scheme of things right now. Um, it's going to take quite some time for things to play out. You know, I think as we get closer to 2030, um, as we quickly approach those climate goals, you know, um, we're going to see demand pick up pretty significantly and, and by proxy, um, a lot of the development of the infrastructure that's necessary for these markets. Uh, but I think there's, it, it's definitely been lagging recently and, and, uh, yeah, I'm quite frankly, I'm not totally sure what's going to turn this around, uh, cause there's not been, you know, significant interest in these markets at the moment, but, you know, as far as Abix goes, um, Abix is developing a new commodity futures exchange and clearinghouse in Singapore. Um, so one of the contracts that they're going to develop is uh, carbon contracts as well. Um, and that's going to be paired up with other contracts that they're developing, uh, like LNG. So you could potentially have net zero LNG. Um, and these are some of the things that we could talk about more as well uh, and some of the prospects they have. But uh, generally speaking, you know, the infrastructure will will develop over time. Um, I thoroughly believe that as, as we try to reach net zero. And if we even want to reach net zero, then it's a necessity. There is, there is no other option. We will have to use carbon credits. You know, uh, it's, it's not an if it's, it's a when. Yeah, for sure. I agree. There's, there's too much energy consumption in the world and our grid is not as clean as it needs to be to reach net zero. So carbon credits are pretty much the only way we're going to get there. And that's a really interesting note that you made there. I, I would like to talk a little bit about the net zero LNG contracts, for example, because I've always sort of thought of it as two separate pieces. But if you could pair them together and essentially you, you're you buying net zero LNG or net zero crude or, or however it works, I think that that would be very attractive for some companies. Yeah, we've already seen that happening as well in the markets. I forget which company it was, I believe Shell, uh, but I might be mistaken on that. Um, had already been working on buying some net zero, you know, LNG uh, carriers. So there is some of that going on in the markets, uh, but Abex is, you know, sort of developing them hand in hand where they'll have the LNG physically delivered futures contracts and they'll also have the same for carbon. So uh, you'll be able to pair those together on the exchange. And they'll have you know other contracts as well over time, uh, like nickel, for example, which has uh, had a lot of controversy recently with the LME because they had to, you know, cancel trades, and that was a whole debacle in uh, 2022. So, and they also recently just found um, bags of rocks in their <laughs> in their warehouses as well, uh, and they're now instituting uh, touch checks, I believe they call it. So. Uh, to have people go in and touch the bags to make sure that it's not full of rocks. So uh, there are some other issues going on there. And those are some of the markets that, you know, Abix is working to cater to because they've been, um, you know, relatively, uh, you know, abandoned by current market participants. Yeah, I heard about that 
touch check where basically, you know, they're not weighing them or anything. They're just touching the base to make sure it feels like nickel, which to me seems bizarre, but hey, whatever it takes to fix the problem they had. But um, So then, you know, with AVAX, they're a, they're a financial software company. But I do listen to the podcast. It's, it has their chief economist, uh, Smarter Markets. And they do tend to focus mostly on energy and, and carbon. And I, I feel like there aren't that many financial software companies out there headed that direction, which I think could be a pro. Um, I wonder if there's anything else about AVAX that you'd want to talk about. Yeah, so as far as technology goes, um, you know, the commodity exchange is just one piece of ABEX and what they're developing in Singapore. Um, and it's quite rare because it's going to be the only physically delivered, you know, commodity-focused futures exchange and clearinghouse in the entire Asia-Pacific region, you know, outside of China. So um, that's pretty significant as it is, but that's just the starting point for them as the larger vision that they have is you know verification for um, different contracts and you know the physically delivered commodities uh, because they'll have you know different measurement and verification technology as well as uh, Ethereum smart contracts that will track the different specifications of the uh, of the contracts and what's actually stored in the warehouses um, and other areas. So that's going to provide you know more information and more visibility into everything and uh, we'll hopefully avoid some of the issues that the LME is having, like finding rocks in their, <laughs> in mm -hmm. their different shipments. So that's one thing there. Uh, so there's a lot more utilization of blockchain and distributed ledger technology that they're trying to work on um, as well as investing in web 3.0. Um, and it's worth noting that, you know, this isn't a large part of the business right now. It's, maybe taking up, you know, 10 to 20% of their time. They're mostly focused on the exchange, but uh, this is something that they'll be working on more so, you know, in the future as well. So they're going to have different aspects like, uh, you know, Abix's Verifier or the Vault or Messenger, which are going to be different apps uh, based on what they call ID++. So more so focus on decentralization of data where, you know, right now as things currently stand, you know, companies like Facebook and Amazon, they actually control your data uh, and they control your different spending habits and all those sorts of aspects. But, you know, under Web 3.0, the ownership is actually taken back to the user. So, you know, anyone trying to access your data will have to, you know, actually confirm it with you. And there's more uh, security around that. So, you know, as far as Verifier goes, um, Verifier is going to be similar to Okta in a way. Um, we're, we're more so verifying your identity and um, signatures as well. And Vault is going to be more similar to Dropbox and some of those aspects. And then there's Messenger as well, which is kind of similar to um, you know some of the different things you can do on Bluebird terminals. So there's a lot of competition potentially for some of the existing software companies with um, you know more security thanks to some of the things that Avix is doing on blockchain. So a pretty complex company that has, you know, quite a significant long-term vision. So I'm pretty interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on Web 3.0 and the significance of that. 
Yeah, so Web 3.0 is, is mainly going to be that concept I was mentioning where um, it's more of a transfer to the decentralization of your data. So, you know, a lot of these large tech companies will have to ask for your permission to do things. And um, some of these other aspects, like quite frankly, I'm not too focused on the tech right now. So I haven't done, you know, expansive research on some of the different things that Avix could potentially do. But, uh, you know, it's pretty interesting to hear about overall. Yeah, because I, I remember when I first heard, you know, the web one, two, three kind of deal. It was sort of, you know, I'm not the most technical guy. So just thought I could clear that up a little bit. So appreciate that. Um, I know another company you're looking at is Face Carbon. And these guys, from my understanding, they they work with with various voluntary mark voluntary carbon market projects. I wonder if you talk a little bit about them. Yeah, so Base Carbon is a royalty and streaming company in the carbon credit space. So, you know, some of your listeners may be familiar with companies in the precious metals sector like Franco Nevada or Wheaton Precious Metals. You know, Base Carbon is doing the same thing, but uh, just in the carbon sector. So, you know, they're providing upfront capital to a project developer to, you know, fund a project or their operations. Uh, and in exchange for that, you know, they get a stream or royalty on the carbon credits. Um, and they have two projects right now. You know, one is in Rwanda and the other is in Vietnam. And uh, both of them are focused on uh, improved cook stoves specifically uh, and divvying those out in rural communities. So, you know, those generally reduce pollution in the area and provide, you know, higher quality of life for those people, um, you know, significantly reducing disease, you know, among other benefits. And uh, because those cook stoves are higher quality and they require, you know, less fuel to burn, um, They'll reduce the number of carbon emissions, and then that will grant the project developer uh, carbon credits. So base carbon is interesting because uh, they're one of the first companies to go public as uh, just in the carbon space in general, but you know, especially for royalty companies, uh, they were the second ones to do it you know, after carbon streaming. Uh, and they're actually set to generate some pretty significant revenues this year and probably reach cash flow positivity. Um, but it is generally dependent on Vera right now because they've had uh, one project verified, the project in Vietnam, and they've had that validated. So that'll start generating credit soon. Uh, but the Rwanda one, they're still waiting on. And, uh, you know, Vera's released some uh, new standards for the Cookso methodology. So, you know, there's a certain time frame they have to reach. So if they don't validate the project by, uh, I believe it's June 28th, uh, then there'll probably be some more delays on that because they'll have to change how calculations are done and, I work on some other aspects like uh, the baselines for the project, but you know, that's sort of the uh, original thesis on base there. Yeah. The cook stove projects are kind of a win-win because you, you help communities find a more reliable, cleaner way to, to cook their food. And yep. also you can get the credits back and, I didn't realize that. I think I listened to a podcast with the with the CEO of of Base, and he was talking about the cook stove projects and how without them they would go into their these villages, and the ceilings of these buildings are just you know covered in in smoke residue, and yeah, it's it's uh, really a it's really a terrible sight. So you know, I think that that's a good place to put your money for couple different reasons you know even if you if you just want to know that 
it's going to a good good uh, home um and yeah base carbon very interesting you know these these companies the uh the ticker by the way for anyone listening bcbn.ne and these are these are small companies you know base carbon their market cap is, is 54 million canadian so we're talking a, a tiny company and as far as i can tell they're not they're not profitable yet and it, it's just sometimes with these new industries and, and non-profitable companies I, I struggle because i got burnt i've been burnt in the past especially when uh, in canada here when they legalized marijuana i thought that would be an easy play but of course regulation competition poor management and immature industry all of these things came crashing down so I'm a little bit skeptical with the new industries like this and the small caps, especially when they're un- not profitable. wonder if there's anything that you could say to that as far as the speculative nature of these companies. Yeah, they, they are pretty small, relatively speaking, and it, it's pretty difficult to find one that is is truly trustworthy to the general public just because they have you know such a poor perception of uh you know what what most people call penny stocks um you know anything that's even though it's called penny stocks i think it's anything that's below five dollars so there's generally just a bad perception there already and uh especially when some of these uh you know might not necessarily be scam artists but um, some relatively sketchy management teams hop in here and try to make, you know, a quick buck off of retail investors. You know, it, it happens time and time again. And uh, it's it's pretty difficult to vet management teams, you know, at this level and uh, mm-hmm. and truly make sure that, you know, these are actually credible people. But uh, it, certainly, it certainly can be done. And, you know, certainly I'm, I'm significantly bullish on the companies that I own, but um, there are some different aspects that you can that you can look at to see, you know, what some more uh, potentially lucrative companies might be, and uh, you know, some of these more uh, trustworthy management teams. You know, for example, um, looking at their level of ownership in the company, if it's relatively high, you know, typically I'm looking for at least ten percent, if not more, ownership in the company, so they have a pretty significant stake in seeing the company you know, succeed over time. Uh, and some of those other factors as well, like, you know, do they have previous experience in the industry? And um, something that I don't personally do too often is is actually interact with the management teams because, you know, that's that's something that you can actually do in microcaps. You know, you can't, you can't call Tim Cook and uh, expect to get a response. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, but you you can call these management teams and talk to their IR departments and and you'll get a response because quite frankly there's not even a lot of people calling in general so you can get a lot of information that way and you can try to vet how trustworthy these people are um, you know but those are some different aspects or some things that you can look at to uh, try to find some more trustworthy people. Yeah, I think the management team is huge at this level, and it it really is as you say, hard to vet them, but 
perhaps some of these guys are spinning off ideas from larger companies and you can look into their history from where they previously worked. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a large part of it. Seeing, you know, what industries have they previously worked in? Uh, you can also look at the history of just the company they're working at right now. You know, um, the, there'll be quite a few companies that you'll see in the carbon space where they were originally working on something totally different or, you know, especially just not even in the carbon space, but you know, whatever is hot at the time, like uh, marijuana or NFTs, you know, some of these different uh, previously hot trends that have that have died off pretty significantly. But, uh, you know, you'll see a lot of those companies pivot to whatever is hot. And, you know, especially in the mining sector, too, um, some of these different aspects. Uh, but, you know, there was one company uh, that I was looking into briefly. It's called uh, Deep Market. And they previously been working on, you know, uh, just online games or raffle games, something like that. So totally different industry from what they were pivoting into. And they were working on um, carbon credit minting for NFTs. So that's just a total you know, left field change. And that can work. But, you know, oftentimes you'll see that uh, a lot of these companies fail and you can you can kind of see the signs ahead of time, too. So. Yeah, I've. I've made that argument before about energy companies and carbon because I think that oil companies and energy companies in general are going to have a first mover advantage once we get to a, a real crunch for net zero and at 2030, as you say, because oil and energy companies like Shell, for example, they live and breathe carbon. This is their world. They they completely understand it and they know what they have to do to achieve those levels. Whereas some other companies like tech, for example, I think tech likes the idea of carbon because it, it looks good for their corporation, but they don't necessarily have to live and die by those rules like energy companies. So I think potentially they could be behind the eight ball and they may even need to go in and buy credits from energy companies just to meet their requirements in the future. Yeah. And if I, if I step in, you know, you'll actually see that quite a bit because um, something that's interesting is, is just how expensive direct air capture is right now. You know, mm -hmm. it, it can be upwards of several hundred dollars per credit, you know, per ton. So um, it, it's really expensive and you'll see a lot of the oil and gas companies are the ones that are mainly developing the technology as things currently stand. And, um, you know, it's definitely integrated into their business as it is. Um, you know, it's one of the most polluting industries. So uh, clearly they have a good handle on it. And also, you know, I believe they were hiding the fact that climate change was occurring for a long time. So <laughs> and mm -hmm. conducting different studies on it. So that's another aspect of it. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're the main companies that are developing some of this technology and they're, you know, Shell stepping in and buying essentially the entire market's worth of demand um, on their own, just, just from one company, you know, by 2030 uh, for carbon credits. So, you know, they're going to be big buyers in the space and they, they understand it relatively well. Um, they're going to understand it more than, more than most other companies. So uh, they're definitely going to be big players. Yeah, and especially for a company like Shell, like it's complicated because 
you know, in North America that could be playing in the voluntary markets um, in Europe or in the U like in the EU or in the UK, they could be dealing with compliance markets. So, you know, the technology can be utilized in a couple of different ways for them, I think. And, you know, they can do carbon sequestration and they can do all these new modern techniques for, for oil, but it, it is, you know, very complicated and it has to be additional and it has to be all these things. So it's going to be interesting to watch it play out uh, for sure. And something that kind of grabbed my attention as well, just another company that, that you're interested in is Aduro Clean Technologies. It's uh, ACT.CN. And these guys, they do water-based chemical recycling. And from what I understand, they can transform uh, waste plastics and heavy crude vitamin and renewable oils into renewable fuels. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because that sounds like a very promising idea. Yeah, so something that you'll notice is that the vast majority of the plastic waste that we think is getting recycled is is not getting recycled at all. So, you know, actually less than 10% of plastic waste is, is being recycled. You know, the rest of it is just going to end up in landfills or getting dumped overseas. So, you know, this is a major global problem. And most of the existing technology out there right now, it, it has one type of issue with it or another. Like they can only recycle one specific type of plastic or it uses up too much energy or there's some other, you know, issue with it that you know, I've mentioned previously um, in some of my videos. But yeah, Aduro is developing a new process uh, called hydrochemolysis. So it's going to be a reaction using water. So there's going to be lower required temperature involved, yeah, along with a chemical catalyst as well, which many times they'll actually be able to just get from the waste feedstock itself. So that's pretty interesting in its own right, because there's there's no other technology like it. And right now they're doing, uh, they've already done lab testing and had the process confirmed by peer review to work for breaking down bitumen, uh, like you said, which is asphalt. And that was confirmed to process a few kilograms of bitumen per hour uh, in what they call an R2 reactor. Uh, and now the company's testing that same process for plastic. Uh, so the plastic R2, which is going to be the same process, uh, should be operational around any time now. And they've got the reactor mechanically complete already. So uh, you know, once they have that done, they've done all that testing, then the next reactor is going to be the R3 reactor, which is going to process a few tons of plastic waste per day. So that'll probably be complete in 2024. Yeah, at which point the company would have proven uh, the scalability of the technology. So uh, there's going to be a lot of interest there. And we've already seen interest from large companies like you know Shell, we've already mentioned, has Duro in the Shell Game Changer program. Uh, so they're providing you know financing uh, in different phases for that project uh, and seeing it all the way to you know scalable commerciality. So um, you know that's that's a pretty big deal because Shell is recycling or looking to recycle, you know, a million tons of plastic waste on their own. So that's going to be pretty big for Aduro if they can land that. But as far as what they actually can recycle that plastic into, uh, it was like you said, they can, you know, break it down back into diesel or kerosene, some of these other fuels. Uh, 
you know, or they could also uh, bring it back into an after corrector and turn it into plastic again. So uh, it's really versatile technology, um, really scalable as they can kind of interchangeably add or subtract uh, different reactors. So uh, they've been developing the technology for a long time, you know, over a decade now at this point, I believe. So uh, it's been a long time in the making and we only actually have this opportunity because uh, because of COVID and they were originally going to get bought out and they weren't publicly listed, but uh, because of COVID, you know, that deal fell through. There was a lack of liquidity generally and people didn't know what was going on. So, you know, Duro had to go public and that's uh, the only reason that we even have exposure to this right now. And it's, you know, all the companies we've mentioned are pretty significant portions of my portfolio because they're the only ones I own. I'm extremely concentrated in three companies. So very excited to see what's going to happen over the next you know year or two. Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely plastics have been on my radar. And especially because I saw a post from uh, carboncredits.com, they were talking about plastic credits. And this seems like a very promising idea, especially for a company like Aduro, because if they come out with a, you know, this company's based out of Sarnia. Um, for anyone listening, the, the market cap's 58 million Canadians, so another small cap player but if Canada comes out with some kind of and and it could be I'm honestly not even sure if it's out there already some kind of plastic credit program they could benefit from that yeah I did see that and generally speaking there's there's various subsidies that Aduro's already been tapping into or could potentially get in the future so that that's limited dilution as well for the company but yeah, I did. I didn't look at it too much, but I think I did see that article about plastic credits. And uh, there's there's definitely a lot of subsidies in the industry already, and it's it's the only way that some of these other technologies are are actually going to be profitable, because uh, most of them are pretty inefficient at this point. So uh, it's definitely something I could see because it generally fits with the theme of carbon markets and supporting technology that's not quite there yet, and uh, not quite profitable on its own. So I could see that being being a relatively big market in the future, but you know, we'll have to see. For sure. And when you look at a company like Aduro, do you do you think this company is going to be a standalone company forever? Or do you think that they could be a decent investment just based on their potential for a like a sale to Shell or something like that yeah i know it's been discussed and i know that management wasn't talking about selling until the stock is significantly higher at this point um but you know i i could definitely see the company getting sold over time uh but they at this point they've decided that they want to build things out um and at least see the technology through to scalability at the very least but i don't think they have any plans in the relatively near term or the foreseeable future to do that. Uh, but you know, the, the high likelihood is that they eventually do sell the company to somebody and, uh, you know, it'll probably be significantly higher from here is my, is my estimation, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah. In most cases, especially with some, some of these sort of ahead of their time technologies, the purchase price is going to be higher than what the market has it at generally 
And it's almost like sometimes you find a really good company and there's an acquisition that happens and, and you're almost upset that that somebody bigger sold them because you know you're not looking for shell shares. You wanted a you know a plastic recycling company. Yeah, exactly. And that'll be that'll be pretty unfortunate to see if that does happen. Although certainly not complaining about you know however many bags it would be. It's a significant amount, but you know just comparing a duro to some of its peers in the market. Uh, you know the most common comparison is to Pure Cycle, which has a billion dollar market cap, and uh, they can only recycle one type of plastic. So that's already a disadvantage there. Uh, and their technology is leased out by Procter & Gamble. Um, PureCycle doesn't even actually own their IP, as uh, Aduro actually does by contrast. And so, you know, Aduro at 50 million market cap, whatever you want to call it, and compared to 1 billion. And PureCycle doesn't actually have an operational plan yet either. So uh, while Aduro is behind in the development cycle, probably, probably you know, at least... Uh, one to two years, you know, it's, it's a significant contrast in the market cap. And it, uh, it speaks to the hype that was previously in the plastic space and, and, uh, you know, what already exists as well, but, uh, Duro's pretty unknown at this point. So as they ramp up marketing, um, I, I think there'll be a pretty big run. Yeah. This company has a couple of things that interest me. I, I don't hold any at the time of this recording, but I have been looking at it. And it, it's one of the things that I love about this podcast is I, I get to talk to people like you who are invested in the company and, and know a lot more about it than I do as a kind of a, a way of research in its own right. And I really appreciate you sharing your insights on these companies because they, they are some companies that I've been seriously looking at. And what I like about Aduro is that on one side, they're recycling plastic, which which I think plastic is going to be a new enemy over the next decade. It, we've had, it's been carbon for a very long time. And I could definitely see, once we sort of get carbon settled, I could see plastic becoming, you know, a new war. We need to conserve plastic. We need to recycle more plastic. We need to get these plastic initiatives up and running. Because because it could be impacting the ocean in in different ways that we don't know about yet, or or something like that. Right, and, right, yeah. And and a, a Duro could be in a position to to benefit from that narrative if it happens. And also on the other side, they're producing, you know, clean fuel, renewable fuel, for let's say a a miner needs needs to find some kind of low carbon diesel for their their trucks to get the green bonds we talked about. Maybe they go to a Duro for those. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of pros for a company like that. Yeah, generally speaking, it's it's just going to be a massive problem. There's around, you know, 350 to 400 million tons of plastic waste, you know, per year. Uh most of that is obviously not getting recycled. So it's going to be a huge issue. And you're you're already seeing the narrative around it ramp up a little bit. Um, there are goals to try to have you know most plastic recyclable by 2025, and some of these different aspects that uh, some of these large corporations that are in the plastic industry or the general uh, oil and gas space are kind of looking into uh, for a large part. But yeah, you know, there's different, like I was saying, there's different narratives around it. Like 
microplastics ending up in the bloodstream and and in the oceans generally in our drinking water. So that's you know that's uh, certainly startling uh, to say the least. And mm -hmm. uh, there's also you know the large garbage patch in the ocean and. Uh, generally speaking, it's just a lot easier to have that narrative uh, around. And uh, generally speaking, you know, it's easier for ESG when you know we have some of these large events or large uh, pollution areas going around because you know, it just it just makes it all the more obvious to the the public that something needs to be done. Yeah, I don't. I try to keep this as matter of fact as I can when I look at narrative shifts. And I'm not trying to say there's corruption or anything like that going on. I really don't know. But I think that if they were going to shift the narrative to plastic as opposed to carbon, there could be a lot of money to be made there because it is such an immature industry and it is such an easy enemy and we are already seeing a couple things happening, very small shifts. Like, for example, we're getting the paper straws. And here in Canada, grocery stores aren't, aren't selling plastic bags anymore. Just very small, subtle changes. And you almost wonder if they're kind of testing the waters to see, see how far they can go with it. Yeah, I think... I think it's pretty unlikely that you're going to see consumer consumer preferences change that drastically, right? I think mm -hmm. you know it's it's been talked about previously by you know people that invest in Aduro and uh, you know even the company themselves that it, it's pretty unlikely you're going to see uh, plastic consumption drop in any significant way. Um, it's it's just not possible, uh, especially globally where. You know, a lot of the citizens aren't aren't going to care as much about some of these things, and uh, you know, a lot of the work is not going to be done there. Uh, it's it's mainly going to be done in some of these different solutions that we're talking about, like you know, carbon credits and these different industries funding these company these companies and projects, and you know, also in the plastic space. I, I don't think it's going to be a transfer from dealing with carbon to dealing with plastic i think it's just going to be a general concerted effort on on all fronts there's going to be developments in new technology and and new narratives emerging you know across the kind of esg space if you will and i think that recycling plastic is just an extension of fighting carbon emissions because you know uh, plastic is derived from petroleum-based products so uh, it's it's just another aspect of that narrative in general, I think. Yeah, and again, this for me, it's it's difficult because one of the companies that I purchased stock in is Energia. Yeah, the ticker is ANRG, and this is a company that owns, builds, owns, operates. They call it the BOO methodology of business landfills and and what they do is i'm not sure if you're familiar with these guys but they own the landfills and they put in the technology to capture the methane and they create renewable natural gas and especially during the natural gas 
shortages that were expected to happen in Europe this year, it seemed like a great way to get in on that because it's we're talking, you know, carbon net zero natural gas essentially, and it's renewable natural gas. So it seemed like a good investment at the time. And this company, you know, year to date, just this year is down 82%. And it's a lot to do with a lack of macro factors that didn't occur the way they could have. So it's tough sometimes with these companies, you know, and I think for Adero, I do wonder what kind of headwinds they might see because there's there is always risk. Yeah, well, the primary risk, of course, is that you know because they're working on scaling up their technology right now is is what happens if the results aren't as good as they expect, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's obviously the chief risk there. Um, they don't actually see it as. Uh, it's actually been specifically worded by management that they don't see that as the largest risk the company has because um, they generally expect efficiencies to actually increase as they scale things. Um, so they figured the main risk was actually in the lab work, but uh, there's there's always risk there. And obviously, you know, potential investors are going to want to see proven scalability to uh, you know, multiple tons per day before they're... Um, you know, before some of these larger funds can truly step in and, uh, you know, we could potentially even see a bail, uh, buyout. So we're going to have to wait for that. But, uh, you know, as far as the larger classic narrative goes, I don't see a lot of headwinds there. And um, funding hasn't been an issue for this company because they'll receive grants and uh, the stock price has held up pretty well because, uh, there's a pretty loyal shareholder base and people can see the potential of the company. So um, there's a lot of different aspects there that I think are playing in Adoro's favor. So it seems like they've been okay so far and they've secured funding until they actually reach that multiple tons per day stage for the R3 reactor. So they don't have to worry about funding for quite some time here because they keep the burn pretty low. Yeah, and that's good to hear that Essentially, what it boils down to is their technology has to work. And if it works the way it's advertised, it could be, you know, a very interesting company to look at. I have to agree with what you said earlier about classic narrative. I did hear the microclassics in the blood thing. And um, I think what I read was it could be potentially affecting hormones and, and things like that with people. And, you know, there's a giant garbage patch and it, you do wonder what kind of an impact all that garbage in the ocean which of course our planet is mostly water you wonder what kind of an impact that would have on on warming as well but you don't really hear them talk about it that much but i'm sure there's somebody out there studying that yeah i don't know exactly how much of an impact it has i know that the the ocean and water in general does um, hold a certain level of CO2 and there's different aspects of that. So that could potentially be a factor, but I think largely, you know, it's, it's not difficult on selling people that there's an issue. Uh, it's, it's becoming pretty obvious at this point, you know, whenever you go on YouTube and see that there's different videos about plastic, I mean, some of them get, you know, millions of views, hundreds of millions of views. So, uh, it's, it's clearly an issue that people know about 
and it's something that they care about. And I think, gen, you know, ESG in, in general has that sort of tailwind to it where um, there's there's clearly an issue uh, as far as most people are concerned. Like there are, you know, climate deniers and there's, you know, a certain aspect to that. Um, I'm not overly zealous about environmentalism, but, you know, I do think that there's a lot that we can do as, as uh, human beings, as a species. And uh, I think it's, it's reached a point where the narrative is not going to go away. So that that's not a problem, I don't think. Yeah. And it, me personally, I'm not a climate denier and I'm not, I, I just, for me, I'm so uneducated in the space that I just sort of uh, roll with the punches and try to invest where I think that, you know, I can kind of benefit from some of the tailwinds in whichever direction we're going. And I have to agree with another thing that you said earlier. This sort of just came came back to me. I had this thought earlier, but I f couldn't remember. And it, what it is is consumer, the way that we consume plastic isn't going to change easily. So, for example, in Canada, they said no more single-use plastic bags at the grocery stores. So what the corporations, some corporations have done is said, well, We'll still sell plastic bags, but they're dual or triple use, but they're the same bags. They just made the plastic thicker. So now what you have is the same amount of bags, but triple the waste because people now are buying these three-time use bags, but using them the exact same way as they use single-use plastic bags before. So it's a lot like carbon, I think, plastic, until it's profitable to use less plastic they're probably not going to do it so we're gonna have to rely on companies like Aduro to to clean up that mess I think rather than rely on people's habits to change yeah and it's it's like you mentioned previously uh, there needs to be a financial incentive for these companies to make changes right mm -hmm. um, they, there's no reason that they're going to change anything they're they're not altruistic they're focused on profits for the most part so you know, you'll have the large companies like Apple or Microsoft, these software companies that they don't even emit a lot of CO2 in general, but, um, you know, whatever they do emit, they'll, they'll cover it with carbon credits or some of these other things. So there, there's going to be action there, but for other corporations in general that have a far higher carbon footprint, you know, you need to make it worthwhile for them to do it. And it needs to be uh, if if it doesn't change anything, it needs to be profitable. So at, at the very least, it needs to be break even where uh, it's not going to hurt the bottom line too much. But, you know, ideally, it actually is profitable for them to do it. And that's that's one of the aspects that makes Aduro so exciting because now typically when there's one of these other recycling technologies, it's it's not very profitable to recycle that plastic. And now they're hopefully going to make a more profitable process. So that uh, certainly aligns incentives there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it has to, essentially at the end of the day, all the corporations are going to care about is it does it affect the bottom line. But there are a couple ways to do that. So if, you know, if plastic becomes a big enough enemy in the narrative gets strong enough and they think that they can build some so a little bit of reputational 
or a little bit of a reputation for environmentalism, they, they will take action against plastic as well and perhaps get more sales that way. So it's not always, you know, as simple as it seems, well, we're going to buy plastic credits. Maybe they're right, going right. to do something else to, to gain some profit a different way. So, yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I thought I would just give you an opportunity to, before we end the show here, talk a little bit about the mining industry, if you like, because I know that uh, you focused a lot on that in the past. Yeah, sure. So I did mainly invest in mining for a long time. It's only been uh, about two years now where I really focused on long-term investing. Uh, and previously, you know, I was focused on the mining sector and uh, specifically explorers. And I think it's it's a common trap that people step into um, investing in these different resource companies because they see, you know, they see the potential for high returns. Like they've seen Rick Rule and he talks about Paladin Energy and Uranium, where you know the company went up a hundredfold or a thousandfold, and there's some of these different stories that really bring people in. But um, you know, overall, it's just an incredibly toxic industry where there's so much wealth being destroyed at all times. You're you're constantly getting diluted as a shareholder, and commodities in general are just a horrible business. You know, margins are low or negative for most of the time, and overall it's just generally cyclical so it's it requires a lot of timing which most people if they truly think about it and ponder it and you know reflect on their experience in the mining industry you know the vast majority of the time it's it's not profitable whatsoever you're just consistently getting screwed so uh, it that was a pivot that i made was to long-term investing and focusing on um, at least higher quality companies or you know, companies that could potentially develop a strong moat, uh, although, you know, all the companies I own right now, um, and this is partly because of ESG and my focus on that, but, you know, a lot of the companies I own right now are not profitable, but they could have strong moats uh, when they do start to generate revenues, which should be soon for several of them. So, you know, that's some of the different aspects that I've taken. And, you know, I think people need to think, uh, long and hard about investing in the mining industry because it's it's just so difficult to succeed and and most people don't truly know what they're doing and I I tried to you know work around that and and do different things like picking management teams that had prior experience and success so there's at least a higher chance there that good things will happen but it's just it's such a complex industry that you know most people just don't truly understand and I, I think there's far easier money to be made i think you know if, if you can do it then uh, it'll work out really well but for most people it just doesn't yeah that's that's a fair warning for anybody who's just if is thinking about going into investing in mining and it's interesting you say mention the difficulty i had jamie keach on the show i don't know if you're familiar with him um, but he's a he's a big mining guy, and we discussed some some subjects. And I I kind of asked him what metals he would look to for the transition to green energy, and he said, you know, nickel, copper, and uranium. And I think that's fair. But he he also mentioned that he he gave some of uh, similar warnings to people. He said, 
if you're going to invest in the small guys, be prepared for volatility. And, you know, maybe if you're going to, if you really like copper, then go for somebody, somebody bigger, like a, like a tech or, or something like that. Cause it's almost two completely different beasts when you get into small cap mining, as opposed to a large mining corporation. Yeah, exactly. And I, yeah, I do know Jamie and I like him and, uh, you know, we've interacted a decent amount, uh, on Twitter and, you know, uh, a lot of those criticisms are fair. And I know that he's, uh, he's also involved in the carbon space as well with, uh, Vita yeah. carbon and he's, you know, he's the chairman there. So, you know, he's definitely, he's definitely, uh, throwing his hat in different rings and different arenas. So, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting to see what he does. And there's also, you know, there's that aspect where it, it's easier for guys or gals that have, uh, been interested in mining or commodities to jump over to carbon credits. You know, we can understand it a lot easier than other people. Um, although, you know, a lot of the guys in mining tend to not believe in climate change as much or have some different politics, but, um, you know, there's, there's generally a better understanding there because they have previous experience with commodities. They understand, you know, the supply and demand aspects, the cyclicality, some of these different things that'll make you more attuned to the space. So you see, you see a lot of the management teams uh, in this area coming over from, you know, royalty companies in the mining sector uh, and some of those other companies over there as well. Yeah, I agree. And, and I was, I actually found carbon sort of from an interest of commodities as well, coming from looking at oil, oil players. And it was kind of back and forth really, because it is uh, carbon credits, led me into some of the interesting areas that oil and, and fertilizers and, and things like that are, are developing carbon reduction programs. It's all very intertwined in energy and mining. And, and one thing that Jamie mentioned was in BC, like uh, British Columbia and Canada, the copper miners there are potentially energized by renewable energy for the most part so you could potentially have a product coming out of bc that's net zero car net zero copper and I, I wonder if you've used what you've learned in the carbon markets and kind of brought that expertise of mining as well and mesh those together to look at some of those companies that could potentially benefit from net zero and and carbon in the mining industry yeah well that's that's specifically one thing that avix is working on is um generally over time uh, and something that robert freeland has pointed out as well uh, he's a billionaire in the mining space um he has he has a company where you know his large copper project in the drc uh, is actually going to be I believe it's almost entirely powered on hydro. So um, he's he's generally looking to have his company get a higher price for carbon or for copper, excuse me, because uh, because of that general ESG aspects there. So this is something that that Avix is working on and uh, generally tracking the different aspects of each individual you know shipment for a commodity or each specific project and some of these other aspects where. Um, you'll have a general recognition of uh, 
some of the greater properties about particular projects over others and which ones emit more and emit less and have different prices based off of that. So there's there's generally a market that's going to emerge over that uh, over time, in my opinion. And I think, you know, Abix will probably be at the center of that. And, uh, you know, some of these different projects will be rewarded accordingly with higher prices for their commodities because of that. Yeah, very interesting times. And certainly the transparency that these you know, blockchain smart contracts can bring to the commodity space is going to be a game changer, I think. And I'm by no means a blockchain expert, but I do know that you can do very interesting things with smart contracts on the on the Ethereum train. And I'm assuming that's what Abex is going to do. Um, with that being said, I, I wonder if there's anything you want, want to add or... If not, maybe you could uh, let anybody listening know where they can find some more of your content. Yeah, so as as far as Abex is concerned, yeah, it's it's generally going to be based on Ethereum and there's going to be better tracking there. So you're going to track the different missions based off the shipment and you know, what project it came from, some of those different specifications that uh, it can be more difficult to get visibility on uh, as far as current things are concerned, uh, just because finance is one of those generally outdated industries where there's still a lot of processes that can be improved. And uh, I know that uh, CME is is still in the process of moving things over to the cloud. And, you know, uh, Avix's CEO, Josh Crum, has touted that uh, this exchange, when it launches, is going to be, you know, essentially two... Uh, two technology phases, if you will, uh, ahead of the competition um, as they're working with you know blockchain and some of these far more advanced technologies right now. So that's that's definitely interesting for Abex um, as far as that goes in the technology aspect. But uh, as far as you know, what people can find me on, uh, they can find me on Twitter, yeah, at Carbonomics with an X at the end, uh, and also on YouTube, uh, same name. And those are those are going to be the main two ways that people can find me or reach out, and uh, you know, generally just making content on anything ESG related, uh, especially you know, stocks and financial markets in general. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate your insight here, and I think that uh, we'll have a lot to talk about as we move forward. So I'd love to have you back on again. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, just invite me back on. I'll I'll definitely. Come on again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yep. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Thank you.